you aspire to be a superintendent, you think you know what the job might be like, but you may not really know. Bring together like-minded people. As well as organizations that are supporting school systems. And they bring the problem of practice with a group of people to talk through it, and then with vendors who provide solutions. And when you think about a notion of getting better, a lot of times people think that you're sick, but you don't have to be sick to get better. Having either that trusted network of colleagues when you're in practice or prior to practice becomes really important. That's what IEI does. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation where like-minded, hard-working professionals come to listen, learn, and connect. This week on Education Thought Leaders. I'm joined by Kaya Henderson, former chancellor of DC Public Schools, founder, CEO of Reconstruction. Welcome back to Education Thought Leaders. I'm Doug Roberts, the founder, CEO of IEI, and often the host of this, although we had a great episode last week uh, supporting our Women in Leadership Summit led by Tiffany Law and our team. But speaking of women in leadership, uh, I have been a fan of yours for a long time. Former Chancellor Kaya Henderson and current founder of Reconstruction. How are you today? I'm doing great, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. We, we uh, you know, I, I, back when you were in the, in the seat at DCPS, I was following the work. I was, uh, you know, I was a, a, a young pup inside of a larger K-12 organization. I was working at Amplify the then. Uh-huh. Or, uh, often my consulting business, can't remember exactly which, but um, it was a lot of us in the industry were worried about what was going to happen in DGPS. And then, uh, you know, in, in you came and it was a, uh, it was a great thing, I think, for for the district. And it just it seemed like things, um, you know, kind of you steadied the ship. And I want to thank you, first of all, for your service to kids and to the city of D.C. and just to education in general and appreciate your work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My almost 10 years at DC Public Schools, nine and a half years, um, was honestly like the most exhilarating experience, professional experience of my life until I became a, a startup founder. But um, right. but it was amazing. <laughs> and and yeah, I feel really proud of the work that we were able to do at DCPS. Great. Yeah, it's, it's a tough job and it's getting tougher. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. But you know, here on this pod, we we talk to a lot of our member superintendents or other superintendents with whom we're friendly who are doing good stuff. And we talk to a lot of founders of organizations and we talk about leadership and, you know, how strategy and, and um, you know, equity and just sort of experience and, and skill all kind of come together to, to make things happen. I have, I don't think I've ever spoken to a former soup who's also a founder who've had, who's had an, I've talked to soups who've been, you know, VPs in on the private sector side, but um, this is kind of a neat opportunity to ask you just sort of talk us through your journey from TFA to, to district administrator to chancellor. And, and now here, how, how do we, how do you end up here today? Yeah. So started my career as a middle school Spanish teacher in the South Bronx through Teach for America, taught for two years and decided I I did Teach for America because I was really interested in education policy, but I didn't think that anybody would listen to anything that I had to say about education policy if I hadn't spent some time in a classroom. Clearly, not everybody believes that, but I did. And so (laughs) um, but I came out of that two year teaching experience totally mesmerized by kids, by inequity, by the opportunity that education brings, and by the fact that I didn't see a lot of young, energetic, diverse um, teachers 
in my school in the South Bronx, even though my kids were all of those things. And so I thought Teach for America was really on the cutting edge of bringing new talent into the teaching profession. I think you need a mix of talent. And so after my two years of teaching, I spent time recruiting people into Teach for America, first as a recruiter on the ground, running around the college campuses, and then as the national director of admissions, where I oversaw the recruitment and selection of the entire core nationwide. I thought deeply about selection and what kinds of people would make good teachers in the environments where we were placing folks and kind of got obsessed with this idea of human capital. At the time, this was sort of mid-90s, um, schools and school districts were tinkering around with textbooks and transformation models and buildings, but nobody was deeply addressing the question of human capital and and the quality of teachers and classrooms. And so um, I left the admissions role and ended up um, going to work in D.C. as the executive director of Teach for America D.C. because I wanted to not just figure out, you know, how to bring people to places like DC, but I wanted to work deeply with the system to make sure that those folks were supported and grown and developed. Um, and I learned a lot about DC public schools as the executive director of Teach for America DC. Um, left that because I felt like I was putting bright lights in a dark cave and I wanted to figure out how to rewire the cave. What were the systemic changes that needed to happen at a large school district in order to get, grow, and keep great people? Um, and had the opportunity to go work at what was then the beginning of the new teacher project that was answering that question or partnering with school districts to answer that question. And we started out by just creating alternative certification programs where mid-career professionals could come into teaching, think New York City teaching fellows, right? Um, and we did that all over the country, but I got to sit next to superintendents and human resources directors and deeply understand what animated them about issues of teacher quality and what other things, what obstacles were in their way from centering this in their work. And I did that with superintendents and human resources directors all around the country until my then boss, Michelle Ree got the call to come work at DC Public Schools, which was one of my clients as the new teacher project, which was right. where I had been the executive director and where I knew a lot about the context here, where I had deep relationships with politicians and union leaders and, and where I lived. It was my home. And so when Michelle asked me to serve as her deputy chancellor, she said, look, I'm not going to do this job unless you come and do it with me. And so in 2007, um, we came to D.C. public schools, not as consultants, but as the people who had to make it happen. The bosses. The yeah. And the, and yeah. the deputy. Um, so what happens when you give inmates the keys to the asylum? And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, over the course of the first three and a half years when Michelle was leading, we were able to you know, we, we built the first human capital office in a school district, not human resources, but, you know, really the opportunity to step back and think about the systems that you need to get, grow and keep good people. And then ultimately Michelle left and I became chancellor. Um, I stayed at DCPS for an additional six years in that role um, and had the opportunity to not just deal with the human capital question, um, but to deal with curriculum, to deal with um, community building and, and partnership. I got to 
think about and work with lots of different partners to um, what I would say is restore the city's confidence in traditional public education. Yeah. Um, people were fleeing DCPS in droves. Um, but, at, you know, as a result of my time there, we reversed a 40 year enrollment decline and saw six consecutive years of enrollment growth. We saw the greatest test scores on the history of the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. We saw graduation rates rise, teacher retention rise, student satisfaction was high. I mean, we, for all indications, we had turned around what was the lowest performing urban school district in the country. Yes. And then uh, yeah. I took a little break because I was tired. <laughs> yeah, you need that. Um, but uh, and then went to work um, at Teach for All, which is the international version of Teach for America, uh, which works in 60 different countries. Um, and I had time there to work with communities. Part of the way I did my work at D.C. Public Schools was in deep partnership with communities. And I got to work with communities all over the world to help them understand their essential role in bringing about education transformation. It's not just the teacher or just the principal or just the school district. We, the only places that we've seen real transformation happen is when the community is deeply engaged. And so I got time to work on that in the international context and then got grounded because of COVID and decided right. to use it as an opportunity to do something that I had dreamed about doing for a really long time. Sorry, work from home means dog yes, this, this is a this is a dog friendly <laughs> pod. You're good. <laughs> um, but you know, I got the opportunity to kind of exercise a dream, which was what would a a curriculum look like for that targets African American students and teaches them history and culture and literature in meaningful ways outside of school. Um, and that's how Reconstruction was born. And that's how I ended up starting an ed tech company at 50 years old. Don't do it. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> um, but, but for the last two years, I have had the pleasure of uh, living a dream. But it's is it sort of one of those things? Don't you ever think like if you could go back to college as a as a 50 year old person, you might be better at being a college student, maybe that that same thing applies. You start a company, you know, you don't have, you may not have the, uh, the piss and vinegar of a young one, but uh, some knowledge and wisdom, maybe. I, I got some knowledge and wisdom. I have some credibility, but the stamina that you need yeah, in the startup world is a lot. Um, yeah. It's, so, it's the, so, yeah. it's the, the weekend stuff, the, you know, worrying about things in the middle of the night. I mean, that's, totally. uh, I'm getting a little too old for that myself. Absolutely. So I hear you. Um, well, great. Thank you for just kind of orienting people to your journey. It's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great career story. Um, and you know, there's so many of us, there's, there's a place and time for things and, um, you know, thank you for stepping up when the opportunity came your way. Um, I want, I want to ask you specifically though, when you, there was trouble in D.C., just general political. Uh, there was, you know, there was uh, uncertainty. There was kind of some negativity just around the district when you stepped in. And uh, as an outside observer, um, it seemed that you were a calming influence, a, a steady hand to, to kind of steer things. How did you did you think about that at all? How did you pull that off? What, what were you thinking as you walked in that first day as chancellor? 
first of all, I didn't want the job, right? So I, I had said no 25 different times and then at some point reluctantly said yes. And on the first day I was like, am I really sure I want to do this? Um, you know, having been part of the three and a half years that Michelle led, um, there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of negativity. There was a lot of... Um, you know, breaking of eggs, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the, and the just, news we cover in particular, the the broom. Right? Yeah. Yes. Um, although that was that. Oh my gosh, the broom. Anyway, um, the it was there. One like part of the reason that there was so much whatever was because we were doing things that people weren't accustomed to doing in education, like firing teachers, which was not, you know, teachers are like apple pie. You don't fire teachers. They're all great and wonderful. And we were challenging that notion and doing things that um, were really unveiling a lot of the dysfunctions of the system in a pretty transparent way. Um, And you read the actual story, not just the cover photo that's what the story was. It was Absolutely. like, we're making changes for kids Absolutely. and it just got but, panned, you know, but, the, but that's right. This was, you know, bad news sells papers. Good news doesn't sell papers and, and bad news, a bad news environment is a hard place to do hard work. Right. Yeah. It, it's not motivating to people. I'm asking people to climb a mountain as we are trying to turn around DC public schools. You can't do that if people feel embattled. You can't, people don't do their best work when there's all of this fussing and fighting going on around them, right? And so part of my job, we were we had solid goals. We were on the right track, but I needed to create an environment where, you know, everybody could feel like they were doing their work differently, um, that they were being more impactful and more effective. And you just can't do that when there's all of this fighting, right? We say all the time, when elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers, right? And our job, I would tell people, listen, let the politicians and the news people fight. Our job is to tend the grass, right? Our job is to make sure that these kids are getting the very best. And if you want to fuss and fight, go do that somewhere else, right? But if you want to make things different happen for kids, then let's do that together. And what I found was most people, you know, and there's a class of people who like, the fight is how they get paid, is how they do their business, is how they have power. But the vast majority of people in a school district just want to do right by kids. And so you find the things that you can do together. You start to have some successes and then that success feeds more success. People are willing to take more risks and do more things, especially if they feel like you have your you have their back. And so that was the environment that I was trying to create at DCPF. Yeah, Um, we have a record number of people stepping into superintendencies for, for the first time this year. We've got. Uh, their Hetchinger report uh, estimates twice the number of vacancies we normally have. So um, what, what, who were your, how did you kind of get through that first year? Did you have a kitchen cabinet of advisors, mentors? How can people sort of leverage their, their networks and their, and their, their people, their family to, to get through that first year? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a number of people. I didn't have a formal kitchen cabinet that I brought together, but I had key people who I talked to all the time, including former superintendents. One of my mentors uh, was a woman named Dr. Floretta Dukes McKenzie. Um, Flo McKenzie had been a superintendent in D.C. 
in the 80s. Um, she'd been a superintendent in Montgomery County. Her story was like mine. She had been the number two in Montgomery County. She did not want to be number one, but somehow or another got drafted. And literally, when I first got to DCPS as the deputy chancellor, she called me and she said, you're going to be the number one. And I said, no, I'm not. She was like, okay, Ooh. we're just going to have dinner quarterly <laughs> and whatever, whatever, but you're going to be the number one. She reached um, out to you. She reached out to me. Um There were a number of women in business. I mean, first of all, black women, especially who reached out to me and said, how can we help you? How can we be supportive? Um, But leaders across business, politics. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really important is you've got to be approachable. I think one of one of the things that was different for me is I didn't come up through the system, right? I've never been a principal. I've never been an instructional superintendent. I yeah. know a couple Teacher, of things. TFAs. Yeah. That's right. I know a couple of things really well, but there's a whole lot of other things that I don't know well. And that level of humility allowed me to open myself up to other people and take sage wisdom or take good advice. I watch other superintendents who think they know it all. And they're like, I got this. When the truth of the matter is, these are not your schools as a superintendent. These are the community's schools. These are the politicians' schools. These are the children's schools. And so if we're not deeply engaging those people in co-creating the solutions that we need for kids, then one, I mean, there's no way for you to do it by yourself, but also whatever change you bring is not going to be sustainable. People are not going to be invested in it. And so, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing, I was able to partner with people to figure out the best way to get from point A to point B. Yep. Uh, The the key piece that I called out when you said it, because we've been talking about it, IEI, someone reached out to you and said, I want to help you. And that's something we've, we've been talking about, you know, how do we solve the leadership gap that we're about to see? We've got to reach out to people in our districts. We got to go find them, mm-hmm. find the people who might be ready to lead, but maybe aren't wearing it on a billboard and try to help help them yeah. grow in whatever leadership capacity they, they want to develop. And it goes both ways. There were also people that I reached out to that were like, I'd be happy to talk to you or happy to take a meeting with you. And so I think we have to do both. I think leaders have got to reach out and ask people. I've made myself available to a number of, of superintendents. And, you know, if there's anybody listening on this call who feels like they want, you know, some advice or just an, an ear to listen, because nobody understands a superintendency except somebody who's been yes, a superintendent. Yep. Um, I'm here for it. Well, that's great. We will make sure to let people know how to find you. Um, So uh, Dr. Lavelle Brown, uh, Superintendent Ithkin, and I wrote a piece about um, the the upcoming leadership crisis where we're going to see so many people leaving the jobs. And one of the things we we talked about um, is one of the ways to solve that problem is to solve the other problem we've got, which is that we have disproportionate representation in superintendents by older white men. So if we go try to solve that problem, we're going to pull more people into superintendent seats, you know, sort of an obvious way to solve two problems. Um, you, you in particular, your your tenure as a, as chancellor, the I think the Council of Great City Schools, I'm going to get the exact number wrong, but I think the average tenure in their member districts, which are most of our large urban districts, is about 2.7 years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You almost tripled that, which is, yes. again, thank you and congrats. But <laughs> how, how how can people try to... You know, our friend and member and advisor, Dr. Mark Bedell, just did the same thing in Kansas City, six years, and he's moving on to, to Maryland now. But, you know, anybody who who was able to get over that average tenure, I think, should be celebrated as successful. 
Um, how do you do it? So I think the first thing, I think there's an, an internal piece and I think there's an external piece. If you're really serious about making change in a school district, it, it can't happen in two years. Like there's just no way that you can make big, significant, substantive change in two years. And so I went into this thing thinking, I mean, I, I, I didn't think about it on day one, but pretty quickly it became apparent to me that like, if I wanted to do the things that I was going to do, it was going to take 10 years. And I set my mind early in my tenure that this was going to be a 10 year job. When you see this as a, it's like getting married, right? Like when you get married, you think I'm getting married for a lifetime and you, that's the way you operate, right? Until you don't. Once you decide that it doesn't have to be <laughs> forever, then you make different choices. And so I actually think that it's really important for people who are leading to think about getting married to this job for a decent amount of time if you are really going to make the kind of change that we were able to make in D.C. It takes a long time. This stuff is not I mean, if, it, if you could flip a switch, somebody would have done it already. But if you look at the sure. places where real transformation has happened, it's happened over time. It's happened over, you know, long stretches of relationships being built. It's happened over cumulative wins on top of wins on top of wins that build trust and then that allow bigger things to happen. Um, but it doesn't happen because one charismatic person shows up and is like, mm -hmm. here's what we're going to do now. Or because somebody drops a ton of money in the school district and says, here's what you can do now. That's just not how the change happens. I'm not saying those things are not important pieces, but I, I am saying that the real deal is long sustained work over time. You're going to go, you know, two steps forward, one step back, and you got to sort of allow for that. Then I think externally, our communities need to understand that this isn't a two and a half year job, right? And so if you don't like what the superintendent is doing right now, you got to figure out a way, bringing in a new superintendent is only going to take another two years for them to figure out what's going on before exactly. anything can help. And so we have to get out of this like revolving door thing around the superintendency. It's just not good for kids. It's not good for the system. And so we need communities to get a little more sophisticated and nuanced in how they think about leadership um, in school districts mm -hmm. um, because it takes time. And if, you know, if every school board thinks that when there's a new election, we can scrap the whole thing and start all over again, then you doom your district to, you know, spinning in place as opposed to being able to generate the traction that's necessary to bring about positive change. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that. One of the things we talk about in our leadership development group in IEI Lead for Aspiring and New Soups is um, part of, we need to start calling it success when you have a solid four years or five years. If you walk after that, we need to we need to not say that that is not success. So if you do a DC for five years and you decide you're going to go move to a, maybe a smaller place, it's not that that smaller district doesn't have problems. It will It'd just be, you know, it'd be different kind of things you get yelled at at a board meeting about. Yep. But um, you're always going to get yelled at at board meetings sometimes in this job. And we need to to say to people who do, that's how we get our average tenure up. Five years, great job. You want to move on? Great. Let's get let's get a, a fresh, fresh, uh, highly energized new person in here. And, uh, you know, some we need to not demonize somebody who decides to go do private sector for a couple of years and come back or go teach yeah. uh, college or come back or go to a suburb and come back. 
This is absolutely right. I mean, this job is grueling. And so the ability to stop for a while and do something else and recharge. I mean, I, I part of the reason why I didn't want this job is because as I was coming up, I watched a number of African-American women superintendents die in this job, die yes. from yeah. cancer, from, you know, cancer, cancer, left, right and center. And I'm thinking that's not a job for me because I don't want to die. And and so yeah. I think that um, it is really, really important to to be able to cycle out and cycle back in if that's what you want to do. I also think that it's important um you know, we have to be careful about declaring victory. I, 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 we made a lot of positive change at DCPS and there's still so much more work for DCPS to do. And so what, one of the things that was really important to me was, you know, making sure that I had a clear succession plan. Number one, I left four different people in place who could have succeeded me. And, and I worked very hard to, make sure that the changes that we were putting in at DCPS were not just at the administrator level, but that they seeped way down into the organization so that even if there were changes of leadership, um, the work could continue to be done. This is also an important place where community was able to come in because we had done, done this work with community. When new people came in trying to dismantle things that we had worked really hard on with the community, community was like, uh-uh, we're not doing that because this is what we agreed on and this is how we've moved in this direction. So there's a level of accountability to the, the changes when a superintendent leaves, if the community is involved. And I talked a lot to my staff about them the idea that they don't work for me, they work for the kids in DC public schools. And just because it's my time to take a break does not mean that everybody should leave. That's the reason why I became chancellor. Because as Michelle was leaving, I watched all of these great people who we recruited or retained at DCPS who were sharpening up their resumes and they were gonna go. But they said to me, I'll stay if you stay. And I said, I'll stay because I don't want the human capital drain, but don't stay for me. Stay for the work that we're going to do. Stay because you love DC kids. And I talked about that through my whole tenure. This is not about me. This is about these kids and these families. And so we saw incredible retention when I left DC public schools. Um, And, you know, in the face of school districts all over the place trying to pick off my people and stuff. They stayed. Many of them are still there doing the work because we had to reorient people not to the leader, but to the the community and to the work. Great. Yep. And I want to ask you one more kind of uh, question about superintendenting, and then we'll talk reconstruction. But this is something we we talk about a lot, and and I go out there and say it because I observe it. And every situation is different. Every district is different. Every soup is different. But it seems pretty obvious to me that it can be a lot harder to be a superintendent while being black, while being a woman, while being a person of color. And, you know, I just observe it. I see, I see what our members go through and I see who doesn't go through that stuff. And, you know, if you, if you agree, love to hear your ideas on how we can fix that. And if you don't agree, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely harder on my, when I was becoming um, superintendent, the city council created legislation around my salary to offer me probably $130,000 less than what Michelle was making 
Um, Michelle had less experience when she became chancellor than I did. Um, And it was less than what I was making as deputy chancellor. Um, And I just remember saying, you're going to have to explain to me how a black woman with four years now of senior administrative experience in a school district is is supposed to make $140,000 when I made 195 as deputy and the superintendent made 275. Like you're the only thing that I see that is different is that I have four more years of experience than she did. And I'm black. And that was microaggression. Number one, right. Of a zillion, um, because I was told that I was less qualified because I was non-traditional. I was, you know, I, I had to jump through different hoops than I watched some of my colleagues jump through. And we all knew it was because I was a Black woman. And in mm. some cases, that fueled me because um, that's just what folks like us do, right? I, I came to do this work. And if jumping through a few more hoops means that that's how I get to do the work, that is my life as a black woman. And so I jumped through the hoops, but it shouldn't have to be that way. Maybe I would have stayed a few more years if I didn't have to do those other things. Right. Yeah. Um, and I observe and, media treating people, treating superintendents differently. Absolutely. Um, that there can be, I mean, just outrageous, outrageously harsh treatment of people based on what they look like. And I, I just don't get it. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and we have to reckon with that. I mean, there are amazing, when, when we look at the fact that, you know, we're having the highest superintendent turnover rates that maybe we've ever seen. When I look at the talent that is coming up, I'm worried because there are a lot of amazing um, pe- leaders of color who are not interested in the superintendency because they see what we're talking about. They see how leaders of color, that's right. And, and we are losing talent. And so then we're left with the mediocre people who want this job, who are not always the best people to have this job. Um, And so we got to have some real talk about why we think white men superintendents have delivered for us. Um, And this is nothing personal against any of my white male superintendents. Some of them have done amazing things. Exactly. Many of them have done amazing things. Yeah. And many of them haven't the same way black women or black men or Latino men or Latino women. Like, let's just right. judge people on the merits of the work, not yeah. not, you know, what we look like or where we come from. Yeah. But the uh, I forget who did the study, but there have been studies that kids do better when they see representation Absolutely. from a lot of different people. Right. That's yep. so we, we know that is a winning formula for kids learning. So. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to see, you're seeing majority white districts go look for people of color, not, yeah. not for people, but look to just to bring more diversity into their district. Cause they know it's good for their kids and that, I don't know how we can make that more of a thing, but that's something we talk about a lot. That's step one, because the recruitment piece, everybody seems to be willing to do. The question is, can you create an environment where that leader of color can actually be successful? One of the things that we're also seeing is lots of leaders of color in more conservative or whiter or more suburban districts that get canned because they start talking about equity or because, you know, they start talking about race relations or whatever. And so even if those districts are enlightened around trying to recruit um, and hire more leaders of color. The question is whether their environment is hospitable to leaders of color doing their work. Yep. It's, it's a journey and we're all on it. I hope. Um, 
So reconstruction. So it, it's it's you're not partnering directly with districts, right? This is a Except we are. You are. OK, <laughs> t- tell us about it. I'm going to shut up and let you talk. About it. <laughs> so the easiest way that I re- explain reconstruction is Hebrew school for black kids or Chinese school for black yeah. kids. Right. Yeah. Um, where we are teaching black history, black culture, black literature, etc. Um, to young people outside of the core curriculum of school. Um, and part of the reason, and we do it online in small groups of six to 10 young people with a reconstructor or a tutor. Um, and in this environment, this tutor is teaching a class. It could be a class on, you know, it, it could be a math class where you're calculating HBCU sports statistics. It could be a poetry class where you're looking at great black women poets from Phyllis Wheatley to Amanda Gorman. It could be a book club where you are discussing um, uh, Homecoming by Yagyasi. It could be a cultural class like a cooking class, Cooking for the Soul, where you're learning the history of five soul food dishes and uh, how to cook them. Um, it could be a, a pre-AP class, um, pre-AP literature, which is all African-American literature, or pre-AP um, world history and geography, where you're looking at the history of Africa. It could be Black Shakespeare, uh, which we is actually an award-winning class that we did in conjunction mm-hmm. with the Folger Shakespeare Library, where you look at five Shakespearean plays through an African or an African-American lens. So we teach all wow. kinds yeah. of classes, kindergarten through through 12th grade. Um, and some grown folks courses, some academic, some cultural, some literature based. And um, we thought that, you know, individual parents would buy classes for their kids. And that is happening some. But 90 percent of our clients are schools and school districts, charter management organizations, mm-hmm. after school yep. programs, community based organizations, places where kids already are. that are hungry for culturally relevant curriculum. And so we support after-school programs. We support enrichment blocks in schools. We support um, any place where kids are. We're just not trying to replace class, right? We are supplemental. We are complementary. And we try to not feel like school. Um, so okay. we, we, we try to create a space of belonging and engagement that feels different from school. And is it, is it, does it play sort of the role that an African-American studies department plays in academia? I mean, is it just sort of like, this is a place to learn about African-American culture, history, et cetera? I think, uh, maybe sort of, Yes. But I think we really initially thought that this was, you know, that parents shouldn't have to rely on school to teach it their history and culture. Right. Because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so this allows you to to kind of choose your own adventure and supplement in the way that we see parents supplementing their kids um education, whether it is music classes or, you know, sports or whatever, whatever. I think what has happened, though, is, you know, there's a ton of research on and and part of this is what I saw at D.C. Public Schools. There's a ton of research that shows when kids see themselves and what they're learning, that academic 
outcomes um, increase more rapidly, levels sure. of confidence and leadership are higher, engagement is up for kids, and that's what we saw when we ensured that our curriculum at DC Public Schools was culturally responsive. I just couldn't do enough of it because, you know, in schools, I'm limited. I got to teach X number of things, you know, within 180 days and seven and a half hours a day. I just could not put enough Black history and Black culture into the curriculum and still meet all of the curricular mandates, which is why I decided we needed to do this outside of school or outside of the core construct. And, you know, my superintendent friends were the ones who were like, I'll buy this for my kids. I'll mm-hmm. put it in my after school program. I'll put it in my summer school program. I'll put it in yeah. my enrichment block. I'll put it wherever. Elective. And electives. And so um, that's how we're operating. Most of our clients are schools who are, um, they also, I mean, I think people also know based on my time at DCPS that. I'm not doing things that are not rigorous for kids. And so Mm -hmm. people have a certain trust in the content that we are developing, which is quite rigorous. And, you know, our, we don't advertise this because we, we don't want to be your gap closing thing. We don't want to be your whatever, but we align our academic classes to the common core reading, writing and math standards, because that's the level of rigor we think our kids deserve. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it is, I wanted it to be outside of school because I didn't want to be in the middle of, you know, conversations about whether or not black history was something we should be teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knew how right we would be on that, right. on that assumption. Um, but it also means that I'm with the coalition of the willing. I'm not making anybody do mm-hmm. anything they yeah. don't want to do. So a pre AP course basically sends me into my AP course with a grounding in the pieces of that, a deep grounding in pieces of that that are connected to my heritage. Is that the idea? Connected to your heritage, but still following the conceptual framework of the AP right. class. So the concepts and the whatnot, you will walk into that AP class and things will be familiar to you. You will, the AP world history class looks at the history of, of Western Europe, right? You right. will have gone through some of the same questions and dealt with some of the same concepts just with the history of Africa as the backdrop instead. So the Western European course should be fairly, you should be prepared Mm -hmm. for it because you have gone through the same rigmarole um, just learning about your own history. That's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing and and good luck. And I know you're out working with districts and, um, you know, a lot of our district leaders listen here, so hopefully they hear. And we would love have... we would love to partner with any districts that uh, that are interested in providing this supplementally for their young people. Call us up. Check us out at Reconstruction.us, and we have over 150 different classes that we're teaching, and we would love to be engaged with um, with districts that are in the IEI network. Well, we got we got to get you to come hang with us at some point too. We uh, that would be it's, fun. It, it's a good time. We we work hard and we play hard, and um, you know we should we should get you there sometime. I would love to. So this this time of year, and I know we got to wrap up soon. This time of year, I get a lot of inbound calls from superintendents asking me, uh, you know, what it's like. You know, I'm thinking through my career options. You know, things are going sideways, or maybe they're at that moment where they need to step away. Um, they asked me what it's like to work on the the private sector side of the house in this industry, in the K-12 world. Um, I'm curious, your your take now that you've done both jobs, um, 
what what should a superintendent who's thinking about making that kind of a shift be expecting? What what are the risks? What are the things that might uh, disappoint them on this side? What are the what are the kind of maybe surprising good things about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the startup world is different than most of the other right. private sectors. That's an important now. distinction, right? And um, you're in the startup <laughs> world, as we discussed. Yes, and the startup world is a little crazy. So you if don't you're have, up for the hair, we, there is no safety net, right? Like, right, you don't have just, a team of people who read your emails for you, right? No, this is, no, 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 no. This is actually, like, I had to get back down into the weeds and do work. Like I have not done work in a long time. This is why I'm telling you don't do this at 50. Um, and it is- But, but it, also, I, I'm sorry to cut you up, but to, I want everyone, any soups listening to this to be honest with yourself. I mean, what Kaya has done to build this, you've had to sit and write the outline yourself, like you're typing oh, yeah. stuff yourself. I like, have been chief cook and bottle washer, yes. marketing, <laughs> salesperson. I mean, I am doing work like I did when I was 27 or 28. Yes. Um, it is. It is- what I would say is like, there's no job that is harder than the superintendency. And so to some, uh, to some, in some respects, this is easier than the superintendency, but the work is just very different. It is much more intensive. You're not just sitting back reacting to, or, you know, thinking about or responding to or delegating. This is hands-on work. Um, and that's not always the case in, in many private sector jobs. Um, but I do think, you know, I think you got to figure out what's important to you. I have a lot of friends who are former superintendents who go into the private sector and hate it because things move slowly. Things, yeah. um, I mean, in some respects, they move more quickly. In other places, they move mm -hmm. more slowly. You don't have control. Da, 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 da. So I think you just have to be really clear about what you're looking for in your next job and yeah. make sure that whatever that job is aligns with what you're willing to spend the next few years of your life doing. I didn't plan to be a founder. I thought I had a concept and we'd find somebody who could actually start this business. Um, but an investor bet on me and said, I believe in you, you got to do it. And I was up for, you know, I'm, I'm still a little feisty. Um, and I was so passionate about this idea that I said, I'll give five years to this. Right. And Good. I'm going to build a company that like we can, I mean, I deeply, deeply believe in passing the baton. I think I'm a startup girl generally and DCBS yeah. was a long startup. So right. once we figure out the problem and get things going, I'm not the person who is going to like provide you with the best implementation and scaling and whatnot. I am going to figure out the problem that we're trying to solve in some solutions. And so I'm, I am very clear from the beginning about what do I want this company to look like? Who can run this company with me? And then beyond my tenure, I think we have to, we've got to start seeing ourselves as you know, relay racers, and this is our leg. How are we setting ourselves? How are we setting up the next runner for their leg? And how are we passing the baton in a meaningful way so that the work continues? Because no one of us is going to actually complete the work. Yep. Uh, the other thing I always tell superintendents or any district leader thinking about it is if they want you to sell something, make sure you believe in it. I mean, you're out selling reconstruction because you believe in it, but yeah. if, if you don't, you're going to hate it. <laughs> I turn down so many jobs from people who sell to superintendents. And I just, I, I don't want to, I, I hated those people when they came to see me and mm. I didn't want to be that to my friends and colleagues. And so if you, I mean, if you're a salesperson and that's what you want to do, have at it. Um, but if you're not, yeah. don't do we got to, got to believe in what you're selling and, and our, our, we've tried to build a process here that you 
if you were still in the job, hopefully would not hate um, for interacting with folks and learning from folks. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, you have to believe in it. And so starting your own thing is a great way to believe in something. Um, yeah. So we're rooting for you. What are just some, uh, some kind of last, last reflections on how you're maintaining your wellness as a leader? What are your strategies? How do you kind of start a day or end a day? What, how do you, how do you keep moving forward, but also take care of you? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I have learned over time is I'm a sprinter, not a marathoner. I can do anything for a short burst of intense time, but then I need to rest. The oscillation is really important to me. And so I have scheduled vacations like every three months I am uh, I'm off for at least a week. Um, now that we can work from anywhere, I have figured out how to work from places that make me happy. Um, and just being in places and spaces that make you happy is really key to my wellness. Um, turning off work, um, even when I was superintendent, I, I was like, you can have me from Monday to Friday till Friday night at midnight if you want to. But on Saturdays and Sundays, mm -hmm. that's time for me and time for my family. And it was a shift for a lot of people because they wanted me at every football game and at every mm -hmm. high school yep. reunion and whatnot. But once you actually draw the line and set the boundary, people then figure out how to make it work. And so um, taking time off is really, really important. I also, you know, I exercise. I try to eat right. Um, and I start my days with prayer because Faith is a huge grounding thing for me. Um, and then I say the last thing is like, I actually, I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from other people. And so I spend lots of time with family and friends um, being out on my deck or being out at, you know, houses of family and friends where we're just kicking back and eating and chilling and hanging out is like food for my soul. Yeah. It's in, I, I'm the same, but I work with, with people and, live with people who, for whom it's completely opposite. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how they, how we can want to, you know, unwind differently, but it's, you know, different strokes for different folks. So uh, thanks for sharing your strategies. Thanks for being here. Thanks for talking to us about reconstruction. And uh, we hope to have a, a, a long relationship and partnership with you all as you grow. And we're wishing you all the best. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Doug. Okay. Thank you, Kai. This has been Education Thought Leaders, brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation. The superintendents, we don't have peers in our We, You can have people who support you, but no one's that's in your seat. Talking about shared solutions, talking about collaborating at a very, very high level. So coming here kind of gives you a little rejuvenation, that little pick-me-up. Superintendents and vendors from across the country, and that the whole exploration and development of new partnerships is critical. 